from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Brian All on November 9th, 2015. Brian is the author of the book, The Triad, Three Civic Virtues That Could Save American Democracy. In the book, Brian offers solutions to the problems of partisan gridlock, money and politics, and growing economic inequality in the United States, all from a Baha'i perspective. He advocates three civic virtues, service, learning, and community building. He calls for civic engagement based on these virtues to create a culture of collaboration. The triad focuses on what each and every American can do to bring about a better American democracy. The proceeds from the ebook will support the work of the National Center for Race Amity in Boston. I started the interview by asking Brian where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I lived in a suburb, predominantly white, and this was an era when things were very segregated by race and by class. So I was fairly privileged, fairly well-to-do growing up. And what was religious life like growing up? Well, I was raised in uh, the Roman Catholic faith. We went to Mass every Sunday. My grandmother, my mother's mother, was very, very devout. She went to Mass every single day of the week. And the church that we went to, which was St. Andrew the Apostle, Catholic Church, it's on the northeast side of Indianapolis, was about a mile from where we lived. And what were your interests growing up? Well, I played the piano, so I took piano lessons. So I had the good fortune of having classical music in the household. So I was idolizing Arthur Rubinstein, the classical pianist, when all my friends were idolizing the Beatles and other pop bands. As I was growing up, it was clear that I was good at math and science, so I enjoyed math and science a great deal. Uh, One thing I did not enjoy was sports. I still, to this day, describe myself as athletic, not very skilled at sports. I took up long-distance running as a way to keep fit, but never particularly liked baseball or other forms of team sports. And you pursued your interest of math and science on into college and university? Yes, I studied electrical engineering in college. You are a Baha'i today, and so I'm wondering, what was the circumstances that you had heard about the Baha'i faith, and what's the story of you actually becoming a Baha'i? So it's a kind of fascinating story. The journey was fairly long before I even heard the word Baha'i. By the time I got into high school, being scientific-minded, I was very much questioning a lot of the beliefs of the Catholic Church. I began to consider them superstitious. And so by the time I was out of high school, I considered myself an atheist. And then when I went to college, I encountered both fundamentalist Christians and people who were interested in Eastern mysticism. 
I studied meditation, our Eastern mysticism variety of meditation. This gave me a completely different view of spirituality. And I also saw that the fundamentalist Christians, even though I didn't agree with them, I could see that their faith had a transformative effect on their character and their lives. So at that point, I had to start taking spirituality more seriously. And this led to a quest. Problem was, I couldn't really believe that uh, one religion had a monopoly on truth, that either God's footprints are found everywhere in history or else nowhere. After thinking about this, I became convinced that if you could strip away all the dogmatic accretions, priestly dogmas from all the religions, you would discover that they had a lot in common. In fact, you'd discover that there was a golden thread of truth and commonality running through all the religions of history. So this was all before I had become a Baha'i or even heard about the Baha'i faith. I also became convinced that science and religion are complementary windows on reality. And the other burning question I had was, if you want to create a just and peaceful society, how do you go about it? Is it a matter of changing the system from the top down and changing the political and legal and economic incentives that people experience? Or do you have to change the human being from the inside and kind of work from the bottom up? And so one of my questions was, what is the relationship between spiritual development, between the, the spiritual journey of the individual, and the quest for a just and peaceful society? So after all this, I had come to these conclusions on my own and met someone who uh, introduced me to the Baha'i faith. This was when I was in graduate school, and uh, I uh, investigated it uh, for a few months and then decided to become a Baha'i at that point. Mostly because the Baha'i teachings were already aligned with your current thinking about religion and its impact yes. on social aspects of life? All of those questions, the Baha'i faith you know, affirms the divine origin of all the major religions and explains why they seem to differ this whole idea of progressive revelation, the idea that the founder of each religion addresses a unique set of social and historical circumstances, and also the fact that religions are then subsequently corrupted by human interpretation. That answered one of my major questions. And then the Baha'i faith explicitly affirms the harmony of science and religion, and the Baha'i faith's approach to social change is that you have to work it from both ends. You have to transform the human being. You have to create a more altruistic and more virtuous human being at one level, but you also have to have structures. You also have to have ways of approaching social organization and economics and so forth that enable the good intentions of people to get expressed in the kinds of political and economic and social structures that actually make the society work well. 
since you became a Baha'i, you have written a couple of writings or articles, maybe you can explain a little bit more of that, that seem to express those things that you were thinking about. The first one that I noticed was a piece that you wrote called The Process of Social Change. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I believe that was in World Order magazine. That article grew out of my collaborations with the peace and justice activists here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, of course, Cambridge is a, is a hotbed of peace and justice activism. I noticed in a lot of these very liberal people uh, a certain adversarial approach. Uh, they tended to demonize right, people who were more conservative, and this bothered me a little bit. I felt that there was something deeper that was missing that could bring these disparate parties together in some way. And so I found in the Baha'i principles, in particular the non-adversarial deliberative process that Baha'is call consultation, is one of the key parts of all that. And maybe you could describe for folks what this concept of Baha'i consultation is like and why would it be different? We're used to deliberative processes that are adversarial. That is, people come into the conversation already convinced on ideological grounds or, or whatever of what outcomes they want, and they go into the conversation fighting for those outcomes. Whereas that's very different from consultation. In consultation, we don't know the outcomes ahead of time. We do have some fundamental shared values. We believe that the human race is one family, but the consultative process is a collaborative search for the truth. So people come into the conversation ready to ask questions, ready to hear all sides of the story, ready to learn. Once the facts are investigated and learned in this process, then the participants think about fundamental moral and ethical values that bear upon the facts, and they use these values to come to agreement on what the answer to the question is, or how the issue should be resolved, or what should be done. So it's really a collaborative search for the truth as opposed to adversarial debate. Another writing that you wrote was called The Faith of Science and the Method of Religion. Yeah, and I believe that, that was also a long time ago, and it was published in the Journal of Baha'i Studies. The basic idea here is that science, which some people mistakenly think is based purely on logical deduction, in fact, this is not true. Science is based more on an inductive process. That is, you see examples of some pattern, and then you reach the conclusion that that pattern is universal, or that it will continue to hold wherever else you look. So it does, in a sense, rely upon a form of faith that is an extrapolation from limited experience that what you've seen here is also true over there and everywhere else. And then I also talked about religion on the, on the other hand, which is 
widely assumed to be purely emotionally based can also be something that you base on making observations and gathering evidence. So in the case of the Baha'i faith, the evidence right, is the life and the work of its prophet founder, Baha'u'llah. Uh, he made uh, predictions about the future. You can ask, did they come true? He claims divine authority. Well, you can ask, did he have formal schooling? Or did he display knowledge that is not easily attributable to human sources? And so you can make those kinds of concrete empirical tests of the truth claim. So that was the gist of that article. Now, I imagine a lot of your colleagues are atheists. It seems to be this... I don't know if it's an unnatural dichotomy between scientists and religionists that somehow science and religion has to be mutually exclusive. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand why some scientists feel that religion could not be a part of the scientist's point of view when investigating reality. Well, it's fairly easy to find that out if you just read Faith versus Fact by Jerry Coyne, C-O-Y-N-E. He's one of the more prominent of the new atheists nowadays. You can also read the writings of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris. They do make some valid points, and one of the valid points is that organized religion has made a mess of things in many cases. They point out quite justifiably, that religious people have all kinds of doctrinal disagreements. Those doctrines have solidified into blind prejudices. It can lead to socially destructive behavior. We see a lot of this in the Islamic world nowadays. So they have a point here, and what they're saying is, how can you test your beliefs. They would say if you can't do some kind of a litmus test by which a belief can be falsified, then the belief is not worthy of attention. So I think that is, is one of their major points. The other aspect I was thinking was that an atheist is one who doesn't believe in something larger than creation that could have created creation. I'm wondering what's the reasoning behind scientists who can't help but investigate the wonder of the organizational structure of the microscopic world and the macroscopic world, yet still adhere to it all happening randomly through the, a Big Bang Yes, so I agree that this is, this is an important question. The way I would justify a belief in the Supreme Being is through an analogy. Imagine you walk into a room and you discover some sophisticated machine sitting in that room. You have no idea where the machine came from or even whether it came from anywhere. And you take it apart and you start to learn how it works. You basically reverse engineer this machine 
and you discover that it operates according to elegant mathematical design principles. And so you need the power of your mind to understand this machine. So now that leads to the question, was the machine invented by a mind? Or was the machine just there the whole time? Or did the machine assemble itself? And if you think itself assembled, that leads to the same set of questions about the mathematical principles governing self-assembly. Right? <clears throat> now, if possible, you should try to answer these questions with further evidence. But it would be pretty bizarre to suggest that the idea of an inventor should be dismissed as superstition or that it should be the last resort idea or the last resort explanation. In fact, uh, the idea that the machine was invented by another mind is a reasonable idea, not because the machine is a mystery, but precisely because the machine is understandable. Now, take the universe. Humanity's rightest minds have been reverse engineering the universe. It operates according to elegant mathematical design principles. We call those the laws of physics. And these laws are understandable, but we have to use the powers of the mind right, to understand the laws of physics. So is the universe just an inanimate machine? Is the thing that we call mind merely the byproduct of a large number of neurons firing in our brains? Or is it the other way around? Is there a uncaused cause, a first cause, some kind of intelligent agent? Analogous to the inventor in my, my machine analogy, could it be that the mind of the agent is the cause and the buzzing and jiggling of elementary particles is in fact the byproduct? And again, I would say we shouldn't be satisfied with mere belief, but should try to answer these questions with evidence. But the point here is, in the past, belief in God filled the gaps in our understanding. It was called the God of the Gaps by some atheists, right? Ancient man, for example, didn't understand the cause of lightning, so he attributed it to an angry God. But now there's something new going on here. The existence of this intelligent agent, this being, is a reasonable possibility, not because the universe is mysterious, but precisely the opposite, because the universe operates according to orderly and understandable mathematical principles. And Albert Einstein actually hinted at this when he commented, here's his quote, how can it be that the mathematics, being after all a product of human thought, which is independent of experience, is so admirably appropriate to the objects of reality? So that would be part of my response to the new atheism and why I think the idea of an intelligent first cause is in fact not only reasonable, but it's even simpler and more parsimonious as an explanation than thinking that there are zillions and zillions of randomly generated universes and that we just got lucky in ours. So Brian, you have published a book called The Triad, when was the book published? Where can one get it? And can you summarize what the book is about? The subtitle, by the way, is Three Civic Virtues That Could Save American Democracy. 
and the book was published uh, at the end of January this year, and you can get it by going to Amazon.com. There is no print version as of yet. It's either Kindle or you can download a Kindle reader app on whatever smartphone or computer you have. That's where you can get it. So what is the triad about? So the triad is a book that grew out of my concern about the growing divisiveness, partisan bickering, political corruption, and dysfunctional and gridlocked governing institutions in the United States. The triad is really about the power of citizenship, the power of good citizens to change the atmosphere and to make a difference. So if I had to summarize the triad in a single sentence, I would say a healthy democracy is just as much or is at least as much about what we give as about what we get. What Baha'i principles do you put forward in the book to propose a a way forward in improving the democracy that we we have in the United States? Let me start with what the three virtues are because those are really based upon Baha'i principles. And the first of the virtues I call service. Now, the word service may connote volunteering at a soup kitchen or giving to a charity, and those certainly are acts of service. But when I talk about service in the book, I mean something a little broader. I actually quote John F. Kennedy's famous uh, line in his inaugural speech where he says, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. It's interesting that we all remember that quote. We often think, oh yeah, that's obvious, and then we kind of move on to the next thought. We're actually missing some profound insights in that very short statement. Let's go back to it. Ask what you can do for your country. Well, the imperative verb there is ask. And the asker is me, the citizen. So it's really, first of all, an invitation to reflect on my own role as a citizen. The next verb in the sentence is can. Ask what you can do for your country. So it offers the idea that I can make a difference. And the third verb is do. So having realized my capacity to make a difference, I take practical steps. And so the first virtue of the triad is this sense of personal ownership as a problem solver, as a source of solutions in society, as opposed to someone who is a passive recipient of benefits. So the second of the three virtues is what I call learning. And again, sometimes that means book learning or academic learning, but I actually don't mean that. I mean a broader kind of civic learning. So I ask the question, how would things be different if citizens and elected officials could have conversations whose first goal is learning about the problems they want to solve? So as I said before, instead of assuming that he has the answers, each participant would be seeking to ask questions. And the people involved in the conversation 
would pool their knowledge, seek expert advice if they need it, explore goals and methods, and come to agreement on, on how, to, how to move forward. So in that kind of process, the purpose is to figure out what the outcomes should be in a collaborative way, rather than to fight for preconceived outcomes based upon ideological bias. And if deliberation is done in the spirit of learning, the decisions that come from that process are likely to be a lot better than those that result from partisan fight, because they have broader support, greater legitimacy, they come from reflecting on issues in the light of diverse viewpoints and information sources, and they're generally more effective in decisions that were driven by emotional manipulation. And then the third of the three virtues is community building. So a community is any group of people that is building relationships that lead to problem solving. And one um, thing that I talk about in the book is Scott Peck's book, The Different Drum. You know, Scott Peck, as your listeners may remember, also wrote the famous book, The Road Less Traveled, which is about the spiritual journey of the individual. His book, The Different Drum, is about the phenomenon of community, which he accidentally stumbled into on several occasions. And he describes what it means to be a community, discusses their characteristics. He noticed in the communities that he encountered, there is an atmosphere of mutual respect, honesty, inclusiveness. This actually reinforces the learning that's going on, because when you have a community like that, issues are approached thoughtfully and different opinions examined with the goal of gaining insight, as opposed to egotistically fighting for your own point of view. So the community members have shared values, but they apply them in a practical way. They're able to work out their differences to translate their values into solutions to problems. So the third one, community, is almost an attitude one takes in yes, being it, a citizen. It all boils down to attitude. It's primarily a matter of attitude. Do you have an excerpt from your book that you would like to share? Okay, well, I have several excerpts. So there's a large piece of the book that deals with economics. The fact that conservatives and liberals differ in large part on economic questions. So let me read you from, from a chapter that I call ambidexterity, which, of course, means that you can use either the right hand or the left hand as needed. Conservatives are concerned that we need to have a vibrant market system that incentivizes the creation of new wealth through individual initiatives. We don't want to subsidize mediocrity, but rather we want to reward excellence. Liberals are concerned that the unbridled pursuit of Profit leads to exploitative practices that leave workers on the edge of poverty and have destructive environmental side effects. These concerns are not mutually exclusive. To get beyond the paralyzing ideological tug of war, we need to start seeing this as a both-and question rather than an either-or question. Our society needs to take a fresh look at this 
rather than reflexively turning to the government or to the market as the solutions to all problems. So let's not deify the states and let's not deify the market. These are both man-made institutions. Each is a means to an end, not an end in itself. Let's craft the two instruments, state and market, to best achieve the end. Next, let's reject the false dichotomy that we have to choose between a vibrant market system and a system with a social conscience. Let's choose the goal of having a vibrant market system with a social conscience. In other words, the economic system should function so that the profit motive operates in proper balance with human values such as justice, stewardship of the environment, and the importance of authentic communities from the family on up. So in the, the subsequent chapter on the foundations of prosperity, uh, I give uh, examples of kind of what that looks like in the real world. There was a health care reform initiative, for example, in Grand Junction, Colorado, largely the result of not government coercion, the people in the medical profession doing the right things uh, to, to provide universally available health care to people in that county at a much lower cost than many places in the rest of the country. I do have a question for you. You described this unnatural dichotomy between the left and the right regarding the marketplace and uh, making sure those that don't have are taken care of. I'm just wondering, what's your viewpoint as far as the direction this country is going to go in, seemingly that it's becoming more divided rather than converging toward a consultative process of resolving problems. How do you see this playing out? Well, I think that people are beginning to recognize that it's broken. So that is always the silver lining. Whenever you have a system that's becoming increasingly dysfunctional, this will cause uh, disruption and pain, and people will no longer be content with the status quo. That, of course, has both a danger and an opportunity. The danger is that it would feed uh, toxic ideologies. The opportunity, though, is that people will start to be open to new approaches and new ideas because the old approaches and the old ideas aren't working anymore. I remember many, many years ago, uh, I was at a Baha'i Studies conference, and we were addressed by Irvin Laszlo, who is a thinker from the Club of Rome. And he told us at that time that a number of studies of all kinds of different systems, physical systems, biological systems, social systems, one of the insights of those studies is that when you enter into a period of instability, then this is a condition that amplifies the influence of small things, small forces, so that as our society becomes more unstable, little groups that would normally be negligible in their influence, start to gain a lot more leverage on what happens. 
Uh, and this can be either good or it can be bad. And one example of the bad was in the late 1920s, the German economy began to recover. And once that started to happen, Hitler and his people had to sort of buy their time. And then once the Great Depression hit and the economy tanked again, that's when the Nazis were able to rise to power. So Irvin Laszlo was telling us that as our society goes into a period of instability, we want benign groups like the Baha'i Faith to be the ones that gain influence. So that's one take on this, is that the severity of our problems, in fact, are exactly what will pave the way to change. Now, the other thing that's interesting, and that I discovered when I wrote this book, was that there's a lot of people out there engaging in grassroots participatory democracy, problem-solving at the community level, and it's actually very encouraging. There is a, a grassroots civic renewal movement out there, and I give several examples in the book of that. The California Redistricting Commission is one example that I cite to illustrate the virtue of service. So this was an effort to redraw the electoral map of California to basically undo the the gerrymandered map of California. It was conducted with a very inclusive process. A whole bunch of small groups of citizens were involved in helping to bring this reform about the new map of, of California, the redistricting map of California, eventually came up with uh, one widespread praise from electoral reform groups. So here was a really concrete example of ordinary citizens rising to help solve a problem. Brian, do you have another excerpt you'd like to share? Okay, yes. There's a chapter on America's place in the world and deals with foreign policy and national security a little bit. And the chapter is called The Astronaut's Eye View. So it opens with a description of what the Apollo astronauts experienced when they look at the Earth when standing on the moon or orbiting the moon. One of the things that Frank Borman stated about his experience was when you're finally up at the moon looking back at the Earth, all those differences and nationalistic traits are pretty much going to blend. And you're going to get a, a feeling that maybe this really is one world. And why the hell can't we live together like decent people? So this experience transformed their understanding of our world, being able to see it from a distance where it could be hidden behind the thumbnail. Here's a, an excerpt. The oneness of the world is not some wacky idealistic notion, but a reality from which there is no escape. When Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, international trade was a small portion of the economy conveyed by ships that took a limited amount of cargo on journeys lasting days or weeks. Now, a click of a mouse can move billions of dollars at the speed of light from one end of the planet to the other. 
When the Industrial Revolution was beginning, the Earth seemed like an inexhaustible reservoir of resources and a limitless landfill for our waste. Now, massive deforestation in poor countries could contribute to global warming that floods the coastal cities in rich countries. In the 1960s, American industrial workers were the highest paid in the world. Now we've seen these jobs moved overseas, turning once prosperous American communities into ghost towns. During the American Revolution, the deadliest weapons were muskets with a range less than the length of a football field. Now we have stockpiles and weapons that could render the whole world uninhabitable. When you were reading that, I was thinking about the station of the United States during the Cold War. It was the, the two superpowers, and then after the Cold War, it left the United States alone as a superpower. But the whole dynamic of world solutions is not conducive to this thinking of being a superpower anymore. That really, to solve the world's problems today, and you mentioned one there about climate change and how the ramifications in one area impacts uh, another country or another area of the world, and that it really requires, a, again, this consultative effort to realize these problems are worldwide and we need to, in some degree, not only think about our own self-interests as a country, but realize that all of mankind is one family and therefore what's harmful for one area of the world should be just as much our interest as what may be harmful in our own country and this, again, gets into your idea of service as well. What can we as a country sacrifice in order to help our brothers and sisters in another part of the world? And we're not there yet. I think our first lesson is learning that, well, we're not number one in everything like we used to be. We are becoming more and more less supernatural, in a sense, where we rank in education is falling, where we're ranking in economy is falling. And so I think we're realizing that our station in the world is changing and we need to take a look differently at who we are and how we are a player among nations in helping the world solve its problems. And I'm wondering what you think about that. I agree, and I think it's also about a shift in culture, about how we think about the relationship between government and those who are governed. And the United States is distinctive in that it, it was you know, the experiment in, in democracy. And yet, in a sense, it was based upon a very adolescent model of human political development. It was very much based upon protest, the adversarial approach to decision-making, and this is something that was important in order to move beyond heavy-handed systems based on monarchy. But I would claim that there's a next step. And here's another short excerpt from my book about that. 
when I say government, that derives its power from the consent of the governed is a big step forward, but it's not the final step in the evolution of human governance. In my description of a healthy democracy in the triad, I've been putting forth what I believe are the, are the elements of humanity's road to political adulthood. Adversarial debate gives way to collaborative learning. Radical individualism yields to a spirit of community. The blame game is replaced by acts of service. And most importantly, the, the realization that the human race is one family endowed by its creator with the capacity to build a progressive and prosperous world civilization emerges as the self-evident truth of the 21st century. Yeah, so that very much reflects what I was thinking when I heard your previous excerpt. There was one other, or two other things in the book, and there was a very long chapter on race relations, and the reason that I, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about that issue is because I believe it has a unique moral status. Race relations in the United States is not merely one issue on a laundry list of issues. It actually has a unique moral status because our country was founded on this idea of the intrinsic equality of human beings, the intrinsic dignity of human beings, and yet we had slavery. And so from the very beginning of our country, we, we made this Faustian bargain, an economic institution that enslaved human beings. And this led ultimately to the Civil War and to the long history of struggle against racism and Jim Crow. And certainly that struggle is not over. There are also, at the grassroots, a lot of civic efforts to address that. Uh, the proceeds from the sale of this book are going to be given to the National Center for Race Amity in Boston, Massachusetts, which is a, a center which promotes conversations about race in an atmosphere of friendship, and open-minded inquiry, so it tries to create a non-toxic atmosphere for talking about me. The other thing was a chapter on education. This chapter talks about the fact that uh, education is educating the whole human being. And this year we saw the departure of a giant in the field of elementary education. And that was Marva Collins. Marva Collins was a school teacher in Chicago, and in the public school system, she got tired of the teacher apathy and the bureaucracy, and so she started her own one-room schoolhouse in her attic. And within one year, students that the Chicago school system had completely given up on, after one year with Marva Collins, they were testing five grade levels above where they had been before. One of her basic philosophies is that there's no magic. She doesn't walk on water or part the seeds. She loves children. Uh, she sees the intrinsic dignity of, of the human being in every child. 
She demands the best of them. And uh, her classroom is also a place where not only were their minds nourished, but their spirits as well. Marva Collins said that education or scholarship divorced of moral values is actually dangerous. Now, just to reiterate, you said the online version of the book, the proceeds will go to the Race Amity? Go ahead. The National Center for Race Amity. The word amity means friendship. I also have a website, which is called www.awakendemocracy.com. Awaken Democracy is all one word. In addition to describing a little bit about why I wrote the book and what the book is about, it has a blog on a variety of topics. So I have made blog posts about gun control and democratic electoral reform, health care reform, money in politics, uh, the uh, incivility of conversations on social media. There's a post on climate change and how it relates to people's religious belief, gerrymandering, why science education is good for democracy, corporate social responsibilities, how to fix our public schools, race relations. So there are a growing number of posts and people can log on. And just by leaving a first name, you can be pretty anonymous here, one can post responses. So it sounds like a very rich mine of ideas and idea sharing among folks about these important issues. Yes. In in the final analysis, this project is not about selling a book. It is about uh, getting a message out there that if you care, then you can do something about it. But it's important to, number one, take personal ownership of that. It's fine to have visionary ideals, but the key thing is then pick out one tiny, tiny piece of it that you can handle. Take responsibility for that little piece and take practical steps. There are many, many things a citizen can do. Your help is needed. Get involved in some way. Well, Brian, thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us, and I look forward to reading the book. Good. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brian All, author of the book, The Triad, Three Civic Virtues That Could Save American Democracy. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light.
King. In that beautiful, in that beautiful, in that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Zion. Zion, all praise. Laughter 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.